You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello again. Thank you for joining me. This is Bob Mallon, Audio Information Network of Colorado, bringing you military news. Let's get right into our first article which is entitled, Could Access to Abortion Services Change Were the Military Station's Troops? Posted 13 August 2022 by Military.com, Thomas Novelli. Air Force officials are expected to make their final decision on whether to move U.S. Space Command from Colorado to Alabama in the coming weeks ending a nearly two-year saga over where the critical headquarters for space operations should be located. But the unexpected happened in June. The Supreme Court issued a ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, known as Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, which ultimately left the right to an abortion up to the states and created uncertainty over whether service members would be able to receive abortion services or other reproductive health care. Moving the Space Command from Colorado, where abortion access is unrestricted to Alabama, where it is illegal, with limited exceptions, could change life for service members assigned to the command, and it has raised a red flag for some Colorado lawmakers who believe it would hurt troops' quality of life as well as harms the military's retention efforts. Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat of Colorado, told Military.com that a potential move of U.S. Space Command to Alabama concerns him for a variety of reasons, but among them is the impact the Supreme Court's ruling has on service members who have to relocate. I'm deeply concerned about how the Dobbs decision and state abortion bans will affect Space Command's workforce and readiness if the command leaves Colorado, Bennett said in an emailed statement. The potential move of Space Command, the unified combatant command that oversees all military operations in space, to Alabama also comes as the Space Forces Space Training and Readiness Command, or STARCOM, looks at finding a permanent home for its headquarters. STARCOM's finalist locations include Space Force bases in either California or Colorado, where abortion access is widespread and mostly unrestricted. Officials are also looking at Patrick Space Force Base in Florida, where state law doesn't make abortion available past 15 weeks, and there are no exceptions for rape or incest. Rose Riley, a spokesman for the Department of the Air Force, which oversees the Space Force, did not directly answer whether the Dobbs decision was being taken into account with the basing decision. But, Riley said officials are looking at how the issue affects the quality of life and options for all airmen and guardians. The Department of the Air Force is conducting site surveys at each candidate location to determine which is best suited to host STARCOM based on factors related to mission, infrastructure capacity, environmental considerations, cost, child care, housing affordability, and access to military veteran support, Riley said. She added, Air Force leaders are working closely with the Office of the Secretary of Defense 
to review the impact on the force of the Supreme Court's recent ruling in Dobbs. It's unlikely that the Dobbs decision will cause a major shift in future bases away from the South, where some of the nation's more restrictive abortion laws and measures are on the books, but Catherine L. Kominsky, a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security think tank who researches military culture and family issues, pointed out that placing certain bases in areas that may have an effect on service members does have a major impact on public opinion. It certainly comes up in the discussions whether it be about future basing operations or future military recruits, like what are the pre conceptions the military if they aren't able to get abortion access or when when any social issue gets involved Kuzminski said in an interview with military.com Pentagon officials recently told lawmakers that the services certainly face a recruiting and retention crisis and said the Dobbs decision will likely make that problem even more difficult. We have concerns that some service members may choose to leave the military altogether because they may be stationed in states with restrictive reproductive health laws. Gil Cisneros, the Pentagon Chief of Personnel and Readiness, said this, in prepared remarks to the House Armed Services Subcommittee last month. Obtaining an abortion in uniform has never been easy. Female service members and dependents of U.S. troops have long been required to go through civilian clinics since military physicians and Department of Defense civilian providers are legally not allowed to perform abortions. It's typically an out-of-pocket expense for a service member because TRICARE, the military health program, covers the cost of an abortion only in cases where the life of the mother is at risk or the pregnancy was the result of rape or incest. Those restrictions come from the Hyde Amendment, a bit of language added to congressional spending bills every year that prohibits federal dollars from going toward abortion services. Because it, is all, it has always been difficult for those in uniform to obtain abortion services, Kuzminski doesn't believe the Dobbs decision would have a major impact on a basing decision. I think the real change will be the distance which women will have to travel, Kuzminski said. So, I actually don't think it changes as much as we think it does, because the laws were restrictive to Department of Defense in the first place. The decision to move Space Command has come under intense scrutiny after former President Donald Trump announced Huntsville as the preferred location for the command. A subsequent Government Accountability Office and Department of the Defense Inspector General report found the decision to move the command to Huntsville Redstone Arsenal was marred by a shoddy and unclear process, but also pointed to no significant reason why Alabama should not have been chosen. But those reports haven't stopped Bennett, as well as other members of Colorado's delegation in Washington, from raising the alarm that it would take longer to reach full operational capacity in Huntsville versus keeping Space Command at its current location at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado Springs. The Trump administration's decision followed a flawed process 
that lack transparency and neglected key national security and cost considerations, Bennett told Military.com. Space Command has already reached initial operational capacity at Peterson, and a strong workforce of both service members and civilians is integral in reaching full operational capability quickly. The concern from service members about moving or establishing bases in certain states extends past abortion access. There is a growing trend of state laws that target members of the LGBTQ community. Two measures that drew outsized attention this year were Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, passed in March, that forbids discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity until the third grade, and an order by Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued in February that directed the state's child welfare agency to investigate reports of gender-confirming care as child abuse. Military.com has previously reported that Air Force, Marine Corps, and Navy say they have policies in place, originally developed with victims or witnesses of abuse and sexual violence in mind, that allowed service members to request transfers if the law in their state makes them feel unsafe or discriminated against. Although given the slow pace of most transfers, it's unlikely that those mechanisms would serve to provide access to abortion. Here's another article from Military.com Military News entitled Afghan Rights Leader Heartbroken After Years of Taliban Rule. Posted 14 August 2022, Associated Press, by Edith M. Letterer. United Nations, a year after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, prominent Afghan rights activist Seema Samar is still heartbroken over what happened to her country. Samar, a former Minister of Women's Affairs, and the first chair of the Afghan Independence Human Rights Commission, left Kabul in July 2021 for the United States on her first trip after the COVID pandemic, never expecting Afghan President Ashraf Ghani to flee the country and the Taliban to take power for the second time soon after August 15. I think it's a sad anniversary for the majority of people of my country, Samar said, particularly for the women who don't have enough food, who do not know what is the tomorrow for them. A visiting scholar to the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School at Harvard, she has written the first draft of an autobiography and is working on a policy paper on customary law relating to Afghan women. She is also trying to put a green card. She is also trying to get a green card, she said. I honestly cannot orient myself where I am and what I'm doing. She wishes she could go home, but she can't. In an interview Friday with the Associated Press, she recalled Taliban news conference a few days after they took power when they said if people apologized for past actions, they would be forgiven. And I said, I should be apologizing because I started schools for the people. Said Samar, a member of Afghanistan's long persecuted Hazara minority. I should apologize because I started hospitals and clinics in Afghanistan. I should apologize because I tried to stop torture of the Taliban. I should apologize to advocate against the death penalty, including 
for the Taliban leadership. All my life I fought for life as a doctor, she said, so I cannot change and support the death penalty. I shouldn't apologize for those principles of human rights and be punished. Samar became an activist as a 23-year-old medical student when an infant son in 1984, the, the then communist government arrested her activist husband and she never saw him again. She fled to Pakistan with her young son and worked as a doctor for Afghan refugees and started several clinics to care for Afghan women and girls. Samar remembered the Taliban's previously rule in the late 90s, when they largely confined women to their homes, banned television and music, and held public executions. A U.S.-led invasion drove the Taliban from power months after the 911 attack in 2001, which Al-Qaeda orchestrated from Afghanistan while being sheltered by the Taliban. After the Taliban's ouster, Samar returned to Afghanistan, moving into the top women's rights and human's rights position. And over the next 20 years, schools and universities were open for girls, women entered the workforce, and politics and became judges, but Samar said in an AP interview in April 2021, four months before the Taliban's second takeover of the country, that the gains were fragile and human rights activists had many enemies in Afghanistan, from militants and warlords to those who wanted to stifle criticism or have their power challenged. Samar said the Afghan government and leadership, especially Ghani, were mainly responsible for the Taliban sweeping into Kabul and taking power. But she also put blame on Afghans because we were very divided. In every speech and interview she gave nationally and internationally over the years, she said the Afghans had to be united and inclusive and we have to have the people's support, otherwise we will lose. As chair of the Human Rights Commission, she said she repeatedly faced criticism that she was trying to impose Western values on Afghanistan. And I kept saying human rights is not Western values. As a human being, everyone needs to have a shelter, access to education and health services, to security, she said. Since their takeover, the Taliban have limited girls' public education to just six years, restricted women's work, encouraged them to stay at home, and issued dress codes requiring them to cover their faces. Samar urged international pressure not only to allow all girls to attend secondary school and university, but to ensure all human rights which are interlinked. And she stressed the importance of education for young boys, who without any schooling, job, or skill, could be at risk to get involved in opium production, weapon smuggling, or violence. She also urged the international community to continue humanitarian programs, which are critical to save lives, but said they should focus on food for work or cash for work to end people's total dependency and give them self-confidence and dignity. Samar said African society has changed over the past two decades, with more access to technology, 
raising education levels among the young and some experience with elections, even if they weren't free and fair. She said such achievements leave the possibility of possible change in the future. Those are the issues that they, the Taliban, cannot control, she said. They would like to, but they cannot do it. Samar said she hoped the eventual accountability and justice for war crimes and crimes against humanity. She hoped for those. Otherwise, we feel the culture of impunity everywhere, everywhere. And the invasion of Russia to Ukraine is a repetition of Afghan's case. We hope for Afghan women that they can live with dignity rather than being a slave of people. The next article from Military.com is a bit more disturbing. It's titled, These Troops Bought Guns on Base, Then They Used Firearms to Take Their Own Lives. Posted 12 August 2022 by Travis Tritton. Sergeant Anthony Mulstad was pumped when he first arrived at 29 Palms, California. The 23-year-old Marine thought he had arrived among the badness asses of the world, according to his mother. But that excitement faded last year as his relationships with his fellow Marines soured, turning into skirmishes. One night he was jumped in the barracks because he helped a junior Marine clean up a room trashed by two other Marines. His mother, Tanya Mort, told this to Military.com. There was some bullying. I hate using that word. He was in the Marine Corps, Mort said. I hate using that word, but that's really what it was. Mustad struggled with life in the barracks and eventually sought help on base for his depression. After more than two months of medication, the doctor he'd been seeing at 29 Palms reported progress in November and boosted his anti-depression prescription. But the doctor and Marine Corps didn't know Mulestad had a gun he had bought weeks before at the Marine Corps Exchange Store, or MCX. At 29 Palms, he had hidden it like many Marines in his barracks instead of checking the weapon into the armory as required. Mulstadt used the gun to take his own life on November 19, two days after his checkup with the doctor. That day he had gone shopping and buying a trigger lock with plans of holding the gun with a friend while out of town. To his mother, his death seemed extremely impulsive, only because it was possible for her son's ready access to a firearm, and pointed this as a glaring loophole for those at risk of suicide. If somebody's going to buy a weapon at the MCX on base, why isn't there communication? Why can't the MCX shoot an email to the armory, shoot an email to the command, Mort said. Or for the MCX saying, you know what? Okay, Mulestad, I'm going to shoot this over to the armory. We're going to deliver it to the armory, and you'll pick it up from there. Mulestad's gun purchase was one of 113,000 200 firearm sales last year at stores on military bases, according to figures provided by the exchange services. The Army and Air Force have 81 store counters that sell guns on bases nationwide. The Marine Corps has 11 MCX sites, including the store at 21 Palms, that sell firearms. 
Most service members' suicides are tied to a personal firearm, according to the Pentagon's latest annual suicide report. And having guns immediately at hand is often a key factor in suicide, the Pentagon said, based on decades of research. That's because suicide is often a sudden decision, as a 2018 RAND Corporation study concluded. Suicide attempts are impulsive acts that may never be repeated if the first attempt fails, the study found. Because those who impulsively attempt suicide with a gun rarely get a chance to reconsider the decision. It is reasonable to suspect that when the guns are less available, fewer suicide attempts will result in fatalities. Personal guns aren't allowed in barracks, but right now there's no requirement that base stores tell commanders when troops who live on base buy guns, or that command that these stores known if troops have been deemed a suicide risk ahead of the purchase. Even as the military searches for ways to ease a year-long epidemic of suicide, with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin creating an independent commission of suicide experts who are mulling policies to reduce the number of troops who kill themselves, little has changed in terms of gun purchasing. With Congress blocking attempts to curb gun access to at-risk troops, nothing much has happened. Free offers of gun safes and trigger lots, locks have served as the primary policy pushes to date. I would hope that if there are going to be sales on military bases, that there's safe, strong training and some kind of basic education geared specifically toward active military, said Nick Wilson, the Senior Director for Gun Avoidance Prevention at the Center for American Progress Think Tank. Mort and other family members of those who have taken their own lives in barracks are pushing for more to be done. After a command investigation of Moonstadt's suicide, the 7th Marine Regiment at 29 Palms recommended his unit create a notification system for when a Marine living in the barracks buys a gun at the exchange store to ensure it is properly stored, according to an April letter contained and obtained by Military.com. It's unclear whether the unit followed through on that recommendation, and there are no indications that similar initiatives are underway elsewhere in the military. For troops, even those at risk for suicide, access to guns on base is mostly unfettered. Exchange purchases are a major source of firearms in the military community, and have been for decades. Buyers are required to fill out a form and firearms transaction record with the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, as well as any paperwork required by state or local laws, but exchange stores do not contact the service member's chain of command when they buy a gun. Some installations require service members to register firearms within 24 hours of purchase. Chris Ward, a spokesman for the Army and Air Force Exchange Service, wrote this in an email to Military.com. The process is not specific to military exchange purposes. The Army and Marine Corps said they require troops to register personal guns with the Provost Marshal's office on base, which oversees military police on any given facility, but is unlikely to know about the mental health of individual service members. 
Service members living in the barracks are required to store their privately owned firearms in the unit or installation armory. Captain Ryan Bruce, Marine Corps spokesman, said this in a statement to Military.com. All privately owned firearms stored on base are required to be fitted with a trigger lock and stored unloaded in a locked, fully encased container. The services also conduct what are called health and welfare inspections in the barracks, partly as a way to ensure troops are following the rules and keeping personal guns in the army as required. Still, Mühlstadt was able to hide the gun in the barracks for weeks after buying it at the exchange. Mort said Marines who served with her son told her it was easy to avoid the barracks inspections and guns could simply be moved off base temporarily. It's unclear how many other service members have taken their lives with weapons purchased at base exchange stores, let alone how many of those were living in barracks and might have been helped by the notification measures suggested by Mort. That's mostly because the military doesn't release those statistics. The Marine Corps, a relatively small branch, did provide a snapshot of suicide statistics for 2019 which it said is the most recent publicly released data on the subject. There were 15 suicides in barracks or shared spaces, and four of those involved a personal firearm, it said. The other military services did not provide data on the suicides and referred questions to the Pentagon annual report. Suicide is a tragedy, and we remain focused on preventing it. We cannot yet say that we fully understand the complexities involved, Bruce, the Marine Corps spokesman, said in a statement. We continue to learn, study, and implement prevention and response measures. Bruce said the Marine Corps Death by Suicide Review Board looks into each suicide, and if it finds evidence that suggests links or causes, it can make recommendations to service leadership. Next section is titled, She Took the Gun Back to the Barracks. Suicide, along with sexual assault, has become one of the hardest problems the military faces. The deaths among active duty troops increased 44% from 2015 to 2020, despite years of new policies and spending both from the Defense Department and Congress. Suicides do not appear to be subsiding. In Alaska, at least 11 troops committed suicide over the past year, a number that alarmed military and lawmakers. As the Army seeks a target and larger role in the Arctic, the frigid and remote environment of Alaska may be fueling the suicide epidemic. The availability of guns on base may also make suicide an easier option for some in Alaska. Specialist Kaylee Harris suffered trauma upon trauma during her assignment as a military police officer at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson in Anchorage, according to her mother, Carrie Harris-Stickford. Harris had just come out as gay in January 2021. Just days later, she was playing video games and drinking with a fellow service member. Harris became incapacitated and was raped, her mother said. She went to a hospital emergency room for medical treatment and reported her assault, first in a restricted and then an unrestricted report, which allows command and law enforcement to be notified. Harris started counseling through the military.
But the trauma of the rape persisted. Harris struggled at a training event and was found to have thoughts of suicide. Harris Strickford said she was placed under do not arm orders and and banned from using a service weapon. She broke off contact with most of her family and I know something was wrong, Harris Stickford said. We would face time all the time, like two or three times a week, and then all of a sudden she couldn't face time anymore, and she said she got switched shifts. Harris Stickford tried raising the alarm through repeated phone calls with the base and to get somebody to check on her daughter, but was unsuccessful. A subsequent move by the Army and Air Force served as an additional trauma for Harris. They put her in a training building. At the exact same building was the man who raped her because they removed him from his duty and put him in there for administration duties, her mother said. So she ran into him in the hallway. She called her special victim's advocate. I guess she had an extremely emotional response. That is what the exact wording was. Harris Stickford said, a few days later on a Friday, Harris said an evaluation over a Zoom call and was removed from the do not arm list, according to her mother, on Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. She was at the base exchange store with a fellow military police officer and bought a gun. The friend suggested that Harris register the gun and put it in the armory. She said, oh no, I'm tired. I'm going to go pack up and take a nap, Harris Strickford said. Then, of course, she took the gun back to the barracks. Supposedly, she printed out a typed letter, her mother said, and then she left and she took her own life in her vehicle. The Defense Department itself has ensured service members have easy access to firearms through the exchange store activities, which provide more than 113,000 personal guns per year to the military community. Service members, like all Americans, have a constitutional right to own a gun, and most personal gun owners who live on base reported reasonably storing their firearm, according to a first-ever department survey on gun attitudes and suicide that was folded into the annual suicide report. Still, many who live on base and have personal firearms do not follow storage and safety procedures that reduce suicide risk, the survey found. About 20% of those troops said they always or frequently kept their guns loaded, and 28% said they kept ammunition with their firearm. Two factors should inc that increase the suicide risk. The common factor in the suicide of Munstad and Harris was access. Both bought guns at exchange stores and both broke the rules designed to keep them safe. Next paragraph, red flag laws and gun sales. The access to guns at exchange stores mirrors the wide society outside the base gates where most Americans are free to purchase arms and firearms. Stores are numerous. Many troops could simply leave the base to buy a personal gun if they wanted to. Guns also play a key role in suicide deaths throughout the country. Any effort by lawmakers to curb access to guns, either on military bases or in the civilian world have typically fizzled out or met with stiff resistance 
despite raucous public defense following mass shootings such as the massacre of 19 elementary students and two teachers by a gunman in, the Uval in Uvalde, Texas. In June, after decades of inaction, Congress passed gun legislation that partly encourages states to impose extreme risk protection orders, also known as red flag laws. The protective order can take away a person's gun and bar them from purchasing firearms if they are deemed a fire arm threat to themselves or others. But lawmakers have rejected proposals to allow military judges to issue protective orders that would temporarily take away a service member's guns if there was risk of suicide or domestic violence. Over the past two years, red flag legislation has been stripped from the annual must-pass defense authorization bill. Nearly 160 House Republicans opposed the measure last fall, saying it could violate troops' constitutional rights. The bill is supposed to be out funding our military and supporting our troops, not stripping law-abiding military members of their Second Amendment rights without so much as a hearing. Representative Sam Graves, a Missouri Republican, said that in a Defense Department statement. I'm glad we are able to get those poison pills stripped from their extremely important legislation. Instead, the military has recently focused on safe storage, such as gun locks or safes as a way to reduce the stubbornly high suicide rates. Defense Secretary Austin believes safe storage is a key factor when it comes to suicide. His spokesman said this earlier this year. Putting time and distance between thoughts of self-harm and access to lethal, to lethal means by using safe locks outside storage of lethal weapons can be successful in stopping an attempted suicide. Laurel Tingley, an Air Force spokesman, wrote this in an email to military.com. Locks and safes prevent anyone without a key from firing a gun. In May, the Defense Department announced troops could ship gun safes to duty stations without it counting toward their household goods and weight allowances. The House is proposing a pilot program that would give free gun locks and safes to troops who volunteer. The latest push for safe storage comes after years of other efforts and programs, none of which seem to significantly reduce suicides according to the military's published statistics. In March, Austin announced the cessation of suicide prevention and response independent review committees as an effort to finally get the department's arm around the program. Dr. Gail Wamesa of the Department of Veterans Affairs was tapped to lead a team that includes an expert on sexual assault and suicide, an epidemiologist, an expert on substance abuse, retired military personnel, a public health expert, and a retired military chaplain. Ua Mesa and her experts were scheduled to, believe, to begin touring bases this month and are expected to eventually give Austin fresh recommendations to combat suicide. For Mott, the mother of Sergeant Mühlstad, at least one of the solicit correction, uh, for the mother of Sergeant Mühlstad, 
at least one of the solutions is simple. Have exchange stores pick up a phone and notify commands when a service member buys a gun. That could have established Mühlstadt's that could have enabled Mühlstadt's command to order his gun to the armory and Mort believes it could have potentially saved his life. I'm not looking to place blame on everybody. That's not what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to hopefully make it harder for someone else in the future to where if they had to go to the armory, they'd have those few extra minutes to think this through, she said, because in my son's case, it was extremely impulsive. The next article, Gunman Who Targeted FBI Office, was a Navy National Guard veteran with history of violent social media posts. Posted 12 August 2020 by Constantine Torapen and Rebecca Cahill. The gunman who tried to breach the FBI Cincinnati office and engaged officers in a standout, a standoff that is, that lasted hours before his death served on a nuclear submarine in the Navy and later in the National Guard. Ricky Walter Schiffer, Jr., 42, is accused of trying to break into the FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio on Thursday morning while armed, according to statements from the FBI and Ohio State Highway Patrol, accounts were are appearing to belong to Schiffer, posted numerous violent messages in recent weeks, escalating after former President Donald Trump's home was searched by the FBI on Monday. Multiple reports citing unarmed law enforcement Officials say he fired a nail gun and also had an AR-15 style rifle. He ultimately died after a shootout with police on a rural stretch of road. The Navy confirmed that Schiffer served in the branch between 1998 and 2003 after enlisting in Pennsylvania he became a fire control technician and served a single tour aboard the USS Columbia out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Navy records showed that he earned no awards or decorations and separated on June 2003 at the rank of E-5. Submarine service is generally more secretive and restricted than serving on a surface ship, owing to the covert nature of submarine missions and the weapons and equipment they can carry. As a fire control technician, Schiffer would have been responsible for the maintenance and operation of the gear used to target and fire the Columbia's weapons. After leaving the Navy, Schiffer served for three years in the Florida National Guard as an infantryman during the time with the Guard, he deployed once to Iraq before being honorably discharged in 2011 as an E-4, according to records from the National Guard. Schiffer's social media posts on Twitter and Truth Social, all of which have been removed since the shooting, showed that he frequently engaged with right-wing conspiracies and suggested a need for violence. Experts have been warning that following Monday's FBI raid, active calls for violence have skyrocketed on far-right social media spaces. According to data gathered by extremist researcher Chris Goldschmidt, Schiffer's tweets included a reply to Senator Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, posted in May that alleged they got away with fixing electricians, make that, this, the, 
statement by Marjorie Taylor Greene was, they got away with fixing elections in plain sight. The next step is the one we used in 1775. I guess that's referring to revolution. In another Twitter exchange in May, Schiffer said people should save ammunition, get in touch with the Proud Boys, and learn how they did it in the Revolutionary War. Goldsmith, who runs Supervarious, a firm that analyzes domestic extremism data, found that Schiffer replied to other noble noble icons on the far right, like Dinesh D'Souza, Donald Trump, and Sean Hannity. On Truth Social, a social media platform founded by former President Donald Trump, Schiffer's rhetoric was far more violent, according to reporting from the Washington Post. Shortly after the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, Schiffer wrote, be ready to kill the enemy, kill the FBI on sight, and be ready to take down other active enemies. On August 8th, the day after the research, Schiffer wrote, People, this is it. This is our call to arms from me. Leave work tomorrow as soon as the gun shop opens. Get whatever you need to be ready for combat. We trust not tail... His statement was, we must not tolerate this one, the Post reported. When Schiffer was unsuccessful in breaking into the FBI office just days after his posts on Truth Social, he allegedly fled the scene in a Ford Crown Victoria, and Highway Patrol officers found him driving on Interstate 71. After officers followed him on the highway for about 20 minutes, he pulled off, got out of his car on a rural road, and he and Highway Patrol officers exchanged gunfire, according to the Highway Patrol statement. Schiffer and officers then engaged in an hours-long standoff after what the Highway Patrol described as failed negotiations. Officers tried to use less lethal tactics to get him into custody. But when Schiffer raised a firearm, officers fired at him, and he died from his wounds at the scene, the Highway Patrol reported. Well, we're closing in on our time limits, and that's going to be all for this edition. Again, thank you for joining me. I'm Bob Mallon from Audio Information Network of Colorado. And this has been this edition of Military News. Be kind to each other, and we'll talk again soon. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.